0: Hey everybody, this is Ryder from Literary Disco. Today's episode is brought to you in part from HelloFresh. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. And I believe Julia has some personal experience with Oh,
1: Yes.
2: You want to tell us all about that, Julia? I
1: didn't know you still cooked, Julia. I thought you foraged in the yard for your uh...
2: food. Well, let's just, um, let me just for some context, uh, here's, here's a conversation that happened between me and my husband immediately after I cooked, food. he was not home. I called him and I was like, Hey, where are you? And he was like, Oh, I'm in the driveway. And I said, Oh, that's great. Cause I have done something I have never done before. And he said, cook dinner before we got home. Like he got it immediately. <laughs> One yes, so I was mad, but also how can I be mad because that is what I had done. So <laughs> anyway, um, HelloFresh sent me this box. Um, I think you know, you guys all know what it is at this point, but it was fun. You know, you get a box, it's got all the ingredients all wrapped up for you, all nice. Then you follow a little card telling you exactly what to do, um, and then you have your dinner. And this was it was I was excited because. The meals in it were more adventurous than what I would do in my like sad late night cooking, which spoiler alert is usually macaroni. Uh-
1: <laughs> mine, mine is a kind bar dipped in Nutella.
2: Oh, that sounds <laughs> good. Um, I got um, this really good Korean bulgogi dinner, which is. You know, it was like ground beef and this really good sauce. And my test was like, can I make this faster than it would be delivered to my house? Um, and I did. It was about 25 minutes. And that, that was it. It was really easy. So you guys oh, should. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, HelloFresh wants you to know, like, the meals are really simple. Check. Oh, they also had a box. I really appreciate this. A box on the card that was like, are you too lazy to peel these cucumbers this way? That's okay. You don't have to. You can just chop them on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey does it come with the does it come with dessert
2: no it doesn't but they do have a wine pairing club that i haven't done yet but it's totally not out of the question um so yeah it's simple it's easy and enjoyable and uh, my favorite part honestly is that you don't really get to stay in your comfort zone every week or whatever, you get the box you're gonna try three different new meals
0: All right, so for $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash Literary Disco 80 and enter Literary Disco 80. So HelloFresh.com slash Literary Disco 80 and enter Literary Disco 80.
1: And then what do you get for that?
0: You get $80 off.
2: So that's the equivalent of eight free meals or $20 off your first four boxes, however you want to slice it.
1: HelloFresh sounds delicious, simple, and enjoyable. And Look, we've been telling you guys about good books for years. We're not branching off into food.
2: <laughs> Listen, I'm That's our next
1: podcast.
2: 90% <laughs> of the time that I'm reading a book, I'm also painting out or drinking coffee.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you might as well be cooking as
0: well. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 143 Sense and Sensibility. Today, we head back to a classic of English literature as we read and discuss one of Jane Austen's enduring novels of manners and marriage Sense and Sensibility. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need, where Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker, Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic, Todd Goldberg, and essayist and radio personality, Julia Pistel. Hey, guys.
1: Hey!
2: Woohoo! I am so psyched about this episode. I am in the... I am ready. Are,
0: are, are, are you like an Austin fan? Is that why you're ready? Because you're a big Jane Austen reader?
2: Um. I mean, I... I mean, I'm... Uh, this would be jumping right into the episode, but I... I like yeah, I have not considered myself an Austin person, but <laughs> I have read this. I have read Pride and Prejudice and I've read Emma. Um so I've have read... you seen
1: have you seen Clueless? Because you know it's based on Emma.
2: I am obsessed with Clueless. <laughs> As uh, Jane Austen taught before today. <laughs> um yeah, seriously. Uh is that all you've prepared, Ted? You watched no, Clueless? I've got some other thoughts, yeah. <laughs> She's my
1: favorite Bronte.
2: (laughs) I would say, oh, God. Well, that goes to what I was going to say, which is I am not an Austin person, but I am an English major, which means I've read Austin and I've read all around in this world and time period. So I love Jane Eyre, written by a Charlotte Bronte. I like the other Brontes. I love George Eliot. Um, So it's really fun to... Get back into this world and into this vibe. And let me just tell you guys how I reread this book. Um, here in Connecticut, it's like forty-five degrees and raining, and I have a cold. So first of all, that's <laughs> ideal, ideal right. sense and sensibility weather.
1: Um, yeah. <laughs> and you, I decided, you want to feel a little drafty while you're reading this. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. Um, I want to feel like my carriage is open. You know, right. and I'm just riding around. And not a the euphemism. Actual carriage.
1: <laughs> Actual carriage. <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, but also I decided to listen to it this time um, because the language is like so fun and exciting. And was it, mm. was
0: it read by a famous actor?
2: Yes. It was read by Rosamund Pike. And it was oh, so yeah. amazing. It was so amazing. And I. it's an Audible original. This sounds like an ad, but it isn't. Um, I loved it so much that I got, she's also reads Pride and Prejudice and, um, and then Emma Thompson reads a couple other ones. So
0: I'm going to
2: listen to them more. It's like a really ideal way to re-experience it is just like kind of have it in your brain. So I've been in the Austin fall. that's why I feel ready.
1: So it's like Sudafed and Jane Austen are the perfect accompaniments to a head cold.
2: (laughs) For me. For me, for any English major. All right. all right. Before we dive too much
0: into the book, uh, Todd, do you want to give us an update from AWP, which you went to recently? Oh sure,
1: yeah. So I went to AWP in Portland, and I met a shit ton of our fans. Um, just an like I must have met twenty five of our fans came up to my uh, table at UC Riverside and talked to me and took pictures and chatted, and they were all super cool and friendly and and nice. There's this weird thing um, that I've experienced and and maybe I experienced it more than you guys do because I met these weird book events um, where the fans of the show will walk up and like we can just have a normal conversation without any sort of pretense because they've heard us talking about our personal lives all this time. So they feel like that yes. they know us. Mm-hmm. Um, not that you guys don't, not that we're holding things back from you. You do. You know us intimately. Um, and so I just had all these great sort of immediate friendly conversations with people about our lives and what's going on with all of us. And it was, it was actually super cool. Um, so it's always a fun time.
2: Um, here's the important question. Yes. In past years, I've been the favorite, but then last year Ryder and his real fame kind of overtook me. Am I back? <laughs> or well, is the, it you for some reason? Well, this
1: is the thing. Um, <laughs> we were in Portland, which is a big book town.
2: Oh, and,
1: damn it. um, inexplicably, I believe that it was me this time ah! that people were excited about, which I found as shocking He's as anybody. <laughs> there was one very nice woman um, who came up to me and said that she listens to the show with three friends, and they talk about it afterwards, and that I am two of their, two. she and two of her friends like me the best, and then another one of her friends vacillates between the two of you. And I was like, oh, so does your friend... Uh, hate me and she's like oh yeah she thinks you're an obnoxious asshole <laughs> i was like well there you go i think those, I good, read- my job. those good reviews are correct <laughs> um
0: so it's that for me. i was i was recently in emerald city comic-con up in seattle mm-hmm. uh we did a whole boy meets world reunion up there and this was it was a big deal because uh bill daniels who played mr feeney came out for this one oh, cool. was Insane, and the crowd was Incredible, and people come up to you know, but it's like all boy meets world all the time, except every once no. in a while, I get like that one literary disco <laughs> listener, and it's like a secret handshake <laughs> where I'm so excited, like, oh, you actually care about me, besides. And Sean Hunter, and uh, and in fact, this time there were two girls who uh, were their sisters that came to our live show when we did it in L.A. Oh, cool! Oh my gosh, that's so cool! So yeah, so I you know took photos with them and and got to talk to them a little bit. But I was like, I, it's so rare that literary disco listeners crawl crawl out of the woodwork during these, <laughs> these pop culture conventions. So if you're ever at one of those and uh, and you are a literary disco fan, please. Say hi to me and let me know who's your favorite. Me. Todd. Me. It's no,
2: Todd. Julia. Um,
1: what I, so what I can tell you, though, about mm. the Portland AWP mm. is that it was the biggest one that has ever been. I'm pretty sure. There must have been fifteen to 17,000 people there. Um, and, you know, Portland's a great book town. And, yeah. um, you know, so I spent a lot of time at Powell's. But I did what I always do at AWP, which is I went to absolutely nothing. Um, and I mostly just went out and ate good food with my friends. And so for me, it was a really successful uh, <laughs> AWP.
0: And you people watch and judge yes. hipsters. Oh,
1: okay, so we got to talk about this. We we have to talk about oh, this. I do no. What's the fashion? It okay. It used
2: to be like, What's what, bow ties? book people fashion? Uh, yeah,
0: yeah. What was the book people fashion at the time? So in the monocles? past- Have we gotten a monocle? Not fashion? yet.
1: So in the past, <laughs> it's been bow ties. There's There, there's, there was the countryman beard uh, thing. There was the fascist haircut a few years ago. There was the man buns for many years. Um, There was the steampunk year where everyone looked like they were in an episode of Doctor Who. Um, So there's always something. And ratty cardigans, I thought it was a trend. It's just how writers dress. Um, Yeah, that's
2: how I dress. It's kind of unintentional. (laughs) Right.
1: It's just like, oh, it's cold. I'm going to wear a ratty cardigan. Um, But this year's haircut was was so prevalent (laughs) and... I like I start, Once I started mentioning it to people, like they were then coming up to me over the course of the week to talk about it. It is what I call the side mullet, where one side of your head is shaved, and then you take the remaining hair and you yeah. throw it over the opposite oh, yeah. side. Yeah. So it was in, on men, women, uh, people who identify as they. Everyone had it. And yeah. it It's looks, like
2: the best I, non-binary haircut. Yeah, yeah, it
1: looks good on nobody.
2: Nobody, nobody <laughs> well, does good on it. I don't well, mind it. I have to say, I, I don't like, like it.
0: it. I don't think I would do it, but I like it. Well, I, I like saw that
2: there's a non-binary ha- haircut floating around like that. I, you know,
1: I, I'm I'm all for anything that makes people happy, but uh, unless <laughs> but <judge> unless <laughs> it bothers me, um, but in this case, I was just like, like I saw some couples, like folks that were holding hands. They both had the same haircut, and I was like, ah, that's. It doesn't look good on either of you. There's got to be something else that's out there. I just, I'm just, well, i worried. I'm worried about this haircut. It's better than know the fascist anything, haircut.
2: It will blow away very quickly. That's no? true.
1: Now, when worry. I was in D.C. a couple years ago and everyone had the fascist haircut, that I found, as a Jew, I found that very disturbing. <laughs> this, I'm just like, oh, it's like everyone's in Blade Runner. I, I just... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's kind of cool. Yeah, I guess if I look at it through sort of a sci-fi prism it's more cool, but it was super prevalent. And and then it's all I could see and I was pointing it out to people and I never got to ask anyone about it. I know I know some people with the haircut, but when you see like 800 people with the same haircut, it's very odd. Like was it well, was there a memo that went out like, "Hey poets, shave half your head." I it's
2: just <laughs> a, a trend just the trend i'm gonna give it to vega <laughs> <laughs> and vega has a real mullet and i don't know what to do
1: i the, guess so, i should
2: just let it let it go growing. i
1: just will let say let it that it, the haircut was it was only people under 40 for the most part so maybe it's maybe i'm just not hip with the youth culture but i guess there is okay. no maybe with that i am not <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> let's move on to sense and sense shows. <laughs> All right, here's my, here's my long intro, because it's actually kind of a complicated series of names yes. and uh, plots, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay it all out there. Uh, in, in 1797, a woman named Jane Austen finished the first draft of a novel that would later came to be known as Sense and Sensibility. She was only 22 at the time. Uh, the book wouldn't be published until 1811, but within her lifetime, it was her most successful book. Uh, it was the only one <laughs> to receive a second printing while she was still alive. Austin was a member of the upper class, uh, the landed gentry of England, and the focus of all of her writing, including her other novels, Emma and Pride and Prejudice, is on this aristocracy and their economic and romantic concerns. Her stories especially are about the women of this class, whose power resided mostly in their ability to marry well and secure fortunes for themselves and their families. So Sense and Sensibility is the story of Eleanor and Marianne. Marianne? Marianne. Marianne? Marianne. 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 Okay, we'll go with Marianne. Marianne. Two sisters. Alright. It's the story of Eleanor <laughs> and Marianne. Two sisters who are very close, but also very different in character. They are indeed. Eleanor, our, our main protagonist, has more sense. She's able to control <laughs> her feelings and check her impulses with a cool rationality, whereas Marianne is more emotional, less controlled, and more prone to being overtaken by her sensibilities.
2: Sensibilities.
0: So the novel begins with the sisters, along with uh, another sister, Margaret, who's younger than them, and their widowed mother. They're all forced to leave their nice big estate and relocate to a cottage in the countryside. Uh, They're put in this position because of the laws of succession and the cruelty of their sister-in-law. So they wind up in a, a slightly lower class and less comfortable position than they are accustomed. And pretty soon, life in the country is actually found to be pleasant enough. And when she sprains her ankle out walking one day, Marianne is literally swept off her feet by a dashing and charming Mr. Willoughby. Mr. Willoughby. Meanwhile, uh. there is the kind but kind of boring Colonel Bradford, <laughs> who is also phoned for Marianne. She's just not that into him, guys. And then in Eleanor's life, there's a man who appears to be a perfect match for her. His name is Edward Ferrars, But... She soon discovers that he's been secretly engaged to a less educated and poorer woman named Lucy Steele. How's that for an intro? That's uh, pretty good. That is a poor gold
2: digger's name if I ever heard one. Yes.
0: Lucy (laughs) (laughs) Steele. Oh, Mrs. Steele. All right, so uh, what'd you guys think? Uh, Why don't we start with Todd? Because, Julia, you you seem to have more history with this book, so I want to hear Todd's impression uh, upon opening and and reading Sense and Sensibility for the first time.
1: Uh, so I the only previous Jane Austen book I'd ever read was Pride and Prejudice. I read that in college because, like Julia, I, too, was an English major. And like you, uh, you yep. were an English major. We are all English majors. Um, yep. And I have seen all of the Jane Austen movies because uh, I'm married to a Jane Austen uh, completist, my lovely wife, Wendy. Um, and we have in our home, for instance... And, picking this up to show the co-host oh God, Jane we have a gigantic Jane Austen book we have the complete wow. novels it's gold leaf yeah it's yeah. gold leaf so reading it was uh it's it's a long book to read but it's also extraordinarily heavy because it's the complete works <laughs> so for me it was a test of endurance um it I mean it's great Jane Austen um is funny and vivid and um you know, she she was the first feminist author, uh, or maybe not the first, but, you know, a profoundly feminist author. And it's amazing to read the dialogue that she has written and the characters that she has created in the context of her time, and that she was accepted when behavior such as what she writes about was not. Um, and so I absolutely loved it. I, I, I thought it was, I thought it was an extraordinarily enjoyable reading experience. And if I ever see Mr. Willoughby on the streets, I'm going to kick him in the nuts,
2: yeah, well, don't worry. He ends up unhappy, but not too unhappy.
1: Not terribly unhappy.
0: <laughs> just, just unhappy enough.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, it's How funny. about you, I mean, Ryder? Well, I just definitely, I mean, like, in terms of opening the book and reading it, man, like, you know, and we talked about this a little bit. When we were reading the opening of Tarzan and how like the the sentence structure of those early twentieth or nineteenth century and this goes even further back and man just the the, the complexity on the sentence level is really fun and uh, you can't speed read this book you know like I am I am a professional speed reader I read super fast and um and you know mostly what I read is contemporary fiction or at least twentieth century fiction. And it's written in such an unadorned, uh, action-oriented style. And Jane Austen is just the queen of nuance and uh, subtle characterization. And uh, you know, uh, you, 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 you reading between the lines. You are constantly having to figure out characters' intentions and um, and understanding what they mean underneath their sort of veneer of polite society. Uh, not only within their dialogue, but also within Jane Austen's own narration, uh, which is difficult. It's 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 like these murky sort of waters that you're constantly traversing, and like I I would find myself regularly having to reread whole pages because I would have zoned out. And lost my focus, and um, and I had to like snap, slap myself in the face, and go, you know, you don't know what's happening right now. Go back and reread that last page, uh, and I, I forced myself to do it. and I'm really glad I did because it was super pleasurable in a really, um, in a way that I've lost in my life. Um, I think I think when I read Pride and Prejudice, which like you taught, is the only. Jane Austen, I had read. When I read that in college, I think my brain was more elastic a little more nimble. <laughs> Probably. And I didn't have to like, it. Just I just read it, you know, easily. And now it's like, I'm so conditioned to like internet reading and Twitter reading. And like, everything is like short bursts of just like information. I could just get the information. And so to have to take a step back and, you know, really listen to an authorial voice that is confusing at times and, and not easily holding my hand was just... Awesome, And it just made me so happy. And, and, and when I finished this book, I felt a sense of accomplishment that I don't feel anymore. Uh, you know, like real, real accomplishment. It was like, I got you, Austin. Like I, I heard you and I, I got your message, I think. And it, it's really satisfying that it's like not, it's not easy reading. You know, it's no. like, it's, like, I, it's well, like I've been listening to Kenny G for years <laughs> and then suddenly
2: heard like real jazz, you know? <laughs>
1: And that will be the first and last time Kenny G is mentioned on Literary Disco.
2: So <laughs> I I think what is really cool. Oh, oh, it's pouring rain now. Oh, thank you, Jane. Perfect. Jane's pouring down for the Maybe you'll get the consumption. You gotta light a fire. <laughs> we need to strip Maybe her I'm... down.
1: Cover her in blankets. Uh, get your I
2: mama. <laughs> Quickly contact um, the apothecary. <laughs> but any what's great about this this language is like there's so much to be learned here on how to write humor which is something I don't think high schoolers can absorb you know like how funny these books are and I'm gonna read two of my favorite paragraphs which is I mean it's one passage uh but it's exactly what Ryder's talking about and it's just introducing a character who's picking out a toothpick case and like Austin's Austin's authorial presence like it's not like she's just describing this she has a fucking opinion on this guy but you have to like focus to understand what it is so here we go um so uh Marianne and Eleanor are sitting doing an errand at a jeweler's and they're waiting around and they're waiting like in a line and this one guy is like taking up all the time in the shop here we go he was giving orders for a toothpick case for himself until its size, shape, and ornaments were determined, all of which, after examining and debating for a quarter of an hour over every toothpick case in the shop, were finally arranged by his own inventive fancy. He had no leisure to bestow any other attention on the two ladies than what was comprised in three or four very broad stairs, a kind of notice which served to imprint on Eleanor the remembrance of a person and face. <coughs> oh, sorry of strong, natural, sterling insignificance, though adorned in the first style of fashion. <clears throat> At last the affair was decided. The ivory, the gold, and the pearls all received their appointment, and the gentleman, having named the last day on which his existence could be continued without the possession <laughs> of the toothpick case, threw on his loves with, gloves with leisurely care. Right. I, the end. Uh, that's That's three sentences. Um, but that is so It's such like a, Amazing characterization And I feel like if you're just glossing through it You're like oh god she, Jane Austen is just describing Boring 18th century stuff But really what she's doing is Eviscerating this guy for Being so into his Fucking toothpick case Like get over right. yourself dude That's the authorial <laughs> voice totally. You know what? You and know what that great. scene
1: reminded me of, and I think this is sort of an important thing for those people who haven't read much of this but have seen a lot of movies, is like when you when you see a movie like Four Weddings and a Funeral or Love Actually um, or Notting Hill, all of which are written by the same guy, Richard Curtis. Like, there's a scene in Love Actually where the actor Rowan Atkinson, who plays Mr. Bean, is putting together a box. of... For someone, and it takes like twenty minutes for him to put together this box. He puts a bunch of flowers and shit in it. Like it is a direct descendant from Jane Austen to modern British romantic comedies starring Hugh Grant. Basically, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it's it's a very clear line from it. Um, but also, you know, the the thing that she does with dialogue. You could never get away with it now. You know, there's there are passages of dialogue that last two pages where no one is interrupted, um, and mm-hmm. it's just a person talking and talking and talking and talking, and making a speech, in essence. Um, but it's such a complex series of interchanges of emotion and conflict and character happening as one person is talking that it's like jujitsu. I was I really marveled at it because you can't you can't get away with it anymore. You couldn't write like that today and get published.
0: No, I mean, uh, what I wrote, what I wrote down in the back of the book at one point was like, "Wow, it's there, there's such um, there's such a thorough examination of every moment going on by the author, by the writer, um, and it made me feel like so much of the prose that we read today, even by like really nuanced writers, is just sort of skating the surface of of events or skating all, uh, and and you're sort of supposed to to uh, you know uh, infer the depths uh, that are going on underneath it, um, and, and Often I think it's not there. You know, like there isn't depth there, and that's the problem with modern literature. Whereas like something like this, you cannot deny how many layers there are to everything that Austin is talking about. Um you, you might miss it, but it's there and it's and it and it's examined over and over like and every beat is, is disgust. And, uh, there's sarcasm, there's irony, there's insinuation, there's insult, there's, there's apology. It's like all built in, in, into the dialogue. And, and to your point, Todd, I found it fascinating that, that the most dramatic moments mm-hmm. happen completely in di- in dialogue. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a moment where, um, like some horrible news is delivered to some characters about, you know, the secret, oh, it's the secret engagement is revealed. And um, people have like multiple fainting spells and there's, <laughs> they go into hysterics and we only hear about it secondhand. hand. Right. We hear about it from, you know, I think it's Mrs. Jennings delivers the news to Eleanor and she, you know, she it describes what happened for like pages. And I was sitting there reading this going, you know, nowadays, like any, if, if this was turned into any writing class, you know, the first thing a teacher would say is, that's your most dramatic moment. Why is it happening? You know, Offstage, off stage, right. Off stage, it's like put in it you know, that's the most important. And, and what that does is it forces, it, it, it forces you to consider not necessarily the drama itself, but, but the, the, the people that are interpreting the drama and it, it, it's a, it, and that's the point, right. Is that like not much actually happens that is high stakes in this book in terms of the world right? We're not talking about life or death for the most part. I mean, there is, there is severely high stakes in that it's poverty or not for these people in a lot of cases. Um, but even that, you know, it's, it's, it's not that great, uh, as far as like, you know, what was going on in the world, especially at that time. Right. Um, so, so what, so it redirects your focus to, you know, what, what could be conceived as superficial. And I mean, we could, debate that because that's one of, you know, that's one of those sort of endless debates about Austin. But, but, you know, regardless of whether you think it's superficial or not, it is certainly well thought out and and so thorough and so smartly done. Um, it's, there's just such an intelligence to the writer that you feel. Um, and you know, and that's why this book lasts, these books, all of Austin's books last way more than I think, you know, what, what could be considered like her contemporary like romance novels, you know, like a lot of those books were being written. A lot of books about people getting married or not getting married were being written for centuries. Um, But you know, hers last because of that intelligence.
2: And they're satirical in part. And I agree with everything you're saying, writer. Like the point of the book is really (laughs) right there in the title, which is so like hilarious. But what we're watching and feeling is Eleanor, and Marianne's responses to things. And like one of the things I wrote down was like several times in the novel, Eleanor almost runs out of the room, but doesn't.
0: Controlled. Uh, Right. right.
2: It's all about like she's getting this crazy information and she does nothing. Um, It's literally all about her just restraining herself and like answering to her reason. Like the word reason is used so much. Um, And then- Whereas Marianne, Marianne- it's impulsive. Yeah, she's impulsive. She's like, she's impulsive. <laughs> oh, she's she's like if if I'm not in love and all settle down by 27, I'm basically dead. Uh yeah, but that's so, a great line. But by the
1: you know, in the timeline of their lives, these people weren't living that long. Most people were dead by 42. So she might be right. <laughs> yeah,
0: but you did feel don't don't you feel when she, you know, loses Willoughby when it's revealed that he's a knave. Uh, don't you like what her reaction is to just like cry and lay in bed for weeks and just, you're just like, get over it, Marianne. <laughs> like, I, I just love the, like, and, and she's so proud of the excess of her emotion, you know, that in fact, she, it's this, this melodrama. And I just love the way the book characterizes that. It, you, you can't help but be like,
2: oh, come on. Like, I get it. It sucks. Like, I hate the guy too, but come on. There's other fish know. in the but sea. But she's also... <laughs> Like, it it was really great reading her as an adult because she's also not cast as this, like, complete idiot. Like, there's other points where she has power or has, you know, some logic to her. She's just more open with her feelings. Like, she's really the more modern character. Eleanor's obviously the character we're supposed to, like, identify with and respect. But Marianne is, like, the character that has moved through the rom-coms. Like, she wants things to happen to her. She wants...
1: She wants drama.
2: It. Yeah, she sure, she sure. wants
1: she wants love. She wants drama. She wants a big moment at a big dance. You know, I mean, the yeah. the the other amazing thing is just sort of seeing how like th- th- this book has set the stage not just for every romantic comedy, but specifically for teen romantic comedies. You know, <laughs> like it it's literally it be, and the reason, of course, is that those relationships are impermanent. And so, therefore, you are more likely to have these outsized emotional responses. Oh, I'm, okay. I, I'm going to die if I'm not with this person. Well, you don't feel that way when you're 30. You're just like, oh, that guy's a fucking asshole. Um, <laughs> but when you're 16, 17 years old, if that person doesn't take you to prom or whatever, it's the end of the world. Um,
2: but let's but move in I, into the historical context in the novel. Because one thing that I really felt now as an adult is like this is a pretty dire it's the most important decision they're ever going to make because they're so powerless and they have to make this decision when they're like 17 18 19 years old right that's fucking crazy that is insane (laughs) of course they feel that much pressure of course it's you can never listen Marianne and Willoughby gonna go on a carriage ride without a chaperone Right? And that was not cool. <laughs> oh, in this right. So, and it's not
1: like they hid it afterwards. I, they, shared a, they shared a kiss or two, but it's not like they had sex.
0: Well, I yeah. actually thought that, that it was implied that they had sex. I I thought you know, like my my sort of, and maybe this is because I really loved the movie The Favorite. I don't know if you guys saw oh, that. Oh yeah, that
1: was good. But <laughs> so I
0: was thinking about how you know, if that took place in the 18th century and it was very graphic and sexual and, and it was sort of representing what is more likely what was actually like back then, which is that, you know, between all the sort of formal uh, relationships, there was a lot of hanky-panky going on. Yeah. Well, and, like, and, awful behavior and prostitution, and, you know, all that. And, so and of I, course, so, Willoughby
1: has knocked somebody up. So obviously right. that's happening.
0: Yeah. So when, when, when Willoughby is taking her privately into the inside of a house and showing her all the rooms, I took that as like a, a very sort of like heavy underlined. Oh, they actually, you know, they went and had sex somewhere.
2: I think it's it's open open to interpretation. But my point is, you know, like it's easy to say like, oh, they're being so dramatic when really like the f- another thing we have to talk about is like this novel shocked me on a puritan level of like how much everyone talks about everybody else's money. Like everyone's <laughs> like, "Oh, you know that guy? He makes 2,000 a year." Oh, you know that guy? He has uh 20,000 000- inheritance mm-hmm. and he gets this much interest off it. Oh my God. How and I was like, holy moly, like every single person, it's like they're wearing their incomes like as a scarlet right. letter or whatever. Um and that was really shocking. And it's like it was great it was to see how to transactional included, it is.
0: Yeah. And she included the actual numbers in right. the book too. You know, it's not like the sort of like I feel like other books, you know, abstractly discuss income levels and but but she is so specific about it. It's clearly yeah. based on her very real knowledge of what it was like, you know, at that time and and I think a contemporary reader could you know, evaluate the characters' In the same way that Austin was evaluating
1: them. Well, and the other um, thing, of course, is that the transactional nature of the relationships is about land owning in England at the time. You know, there there's right. this feudal society, obviously. So you're not going to marry someone or marry into a family that has less than you. And then all of a sudden your generational worth is now lessened. I mean, it's a great social indicator, but... Um, Like Americans of the present day, if you you talk about money or how much you have or don't have, you're tacky. You're completely tacky. No one would ever do it. If if you say, Oh, I I make this or I make that you're gross. You're Donald Trump. Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) But it's, yeah, I just couldn't believe how, and then the whole novel opens with this incredible satirical chapter Uh of the girl's half-brother like systematically with his wife deciding how much to not give them until like they were supposed to inherit all (laughs) this money. And then they they just like keep justifying like, oh, well, it would be, you know, it would be rude of us to give them this much or they would be insulted or, oh my God, we couldn't be expected to do that. And it's like, oh, what was this deathbed wish really about? Um, And it's a super great... Um example of like great dialogue, satirical writing, but it also puts you in the position of like, wow, they got so screwed they, over the empathy for these characters that we haven't even really met yet. Right.
1: Can we can we talk a little bit about the letters? So there's a ton of epistolary writing inside this book, and it's another example of, of course, like you know for Austin, the transfer of information amongst different characters. Um, like now you'd shift point of view or you'd have someone talk on the phone or there'd be a text or whatever but you have all these formal letters being written and sent and you get to read all of these letters that are being sent around and it, you know it's it's a dry way of telling a story but it also made me think like people back then maybe these conversations they're having are are so interesting and articulate because people were more interesting and articulate because they had to present themselves. They had to be able to write a sentence. They had to be able to convey their thoughts mm-hmm. in words yeah. on paper better than we do today even. Um, and so light I, white
0: society sort of dictated a, a rhetorical strategy. Right. Of some sort. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, yeah. and, and an argument and a solution to the argument in, mm-hmm. in writing. I mean, this is something I think writers and lawyers do a lot. Like, you know, I, There are times when I'm having a conversation with someone, and as my lovely wife Wendy says, you know, don't punch down, Um, (laughs) where I'm I'm talking to someone and I set them up to look like a fool. Uh, (laughs) Someone that maybe I don't like. Because I I understand where the conversation is about to go. I understand the words that are about to be said. And not everyone has that skill, right? Um, But in Austin's book... And in Austin's writing, everyone has that skill. (laughs) Everyone is, is moving around words and phrases and stuff like that in order to get the leverage that they want, which makes it all very entertaining and why you can't skip. Like why you have to go back if you get lost and actually read that paragraph of dialogue.
2: And again, it's all about the letters themselves. Like we're shown the letters because it's all about how each character is interpreting or reacting to the letters, you know. Like, I mean, how often do you guys get an email that enrages you? I get them often. That, well, let
1: me let me look at my phone. <laughs> you got <laughs> to remember, I, I, I work at a university. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, there's one.
2: It's that same feeling this, like, emotional thing of, like, you're just living your life, and here comes somebody's screed on you know how much they hate you or how much they love you or whatever and it's just this bomb of emotion into your day and your life and that's what these letters do you know and then we get to see eleanor not run out of the room or marion marianne collapse and you know cry for a couple weeks
1: well i mean the the amount of collapsing i think is overdone (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs>
1: I mean, how many times in your life have you been so angry you've, <laughs> you've taken to the fainting couch?
0: Well, but that only happens, like, in scene once, right? Like, Marianne uh, needs smelling salts at one point. Right. Uh, when, she, but, when but it
1: lasts for a dialogue.
0: while. Yeah, and it's also very much, like, her being dramatic, I think. Like, I don't think Austin, like, in a scene, has somebody actually faint from overwhelming emotion. She has somebody react to their overwhelming emotion by you know sort of feigning fainting right <laughs> like i don't think i don't know that's the way i read it at least which is why i appreciated it I, I feel like you know other books of the time would have just embraced the like and then the woman was so overcome with emotion you know she was hysterical and right. passed out like austin never makes it that easy it's always secondhand it's always through dialogue well there oh, there yeah.
1: there is what julia put in out earlier a, a fair amount of people almost running out of a room though <laughs> like even mm-hmm. even the great scene where um eleanor and willoughby are talking where Willoughby he shows up at the house um when marianne is you know near death and essentially lays out everything that's happened um at the end of that you know weird conversation that they have he almost runs out of the room and i was like it's a pretty big house like you have to run for a while <laughs> you, can't, you can't just burst out and then you're in the wilderness like you're in a fucking castle <laughs>
2: <laughs> Can I read you guys, just to, for the critical point of view, um, the best ever Mark Twain quote about Jane Austen? He hated Yes, Jane you Austen.
1: may. Oh, he did?
2: Uh, oh, yeah. I haven't any right to criticize books, and I don't do it except when I hate them. I often want to criticize Jane Austen, but her books madden me so that I can't conceal my frenzy from the reader, and therefore I have to stop every time I begin. Every time I read Pride and Prejudice, I want to dig her up and beat her over the skull with her own shin bone. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> wow. All right. So oh, are we moving into yeah. the critical section of the Literary Disco <laughs> Podcast? Because I um, yeah. <laughs> I definitely
0: had the same reaction to this book that I did to Pride and Prejudice when I read it in college, which got me in a lot of argument, which is I am loving the book. I am loving all the critique of the high society that's going on into it, all the sort of, you know, the desperation that these women feel and that I, I'm into it and the intelligence of Austin. And then... Right at the end, everybody gets married and it's perfectly fine. And I'm sitting here going, you, you're selling your characters out, Austin. You're selling me out, you're selling every one of your readers out. This is a sham. like this is a travesty and and this is not feminist, this is anti-feminist that it's actually the most conservative. The, it's all about con- preserving, the, the, the order of society by listening to your parents and following the arranged marriage and that in fact all the tension that she has introduced throughout the novel and all the tension that seems like valid criticism of these systems of power vanish because the systems of power reassert themselves and the women are happy and they are so glad that they are once again back into the order of their society. That to me is like the ultimate conservative argument and I do you know, I guess the question is, and this seems to be, it divides critics, like, you know, and readers for, throughout the centuries, is how ironic is she being? Like, do you, do you see her as being wholly ironic and a, crit- and a critic of, of, of these systems of power? Or, you know, does she embrace them? And to me, just because on the story level, everybody ends up together and happy and where with the right person, I can't help but think that she's not that ironic, ultimately.
2: Well, so she ahead, wasn't, yeah. she never married, I believe. Okay. And let me just say here, I know from my Mark Twain time, like there's a billion like Austin heads who are so much more well-versed in her and her work than we are, who are probably like screaming at their uh, iPods right now. Fine. Um, but <laughs> she didn't, when I was reading her description of children, I immediately was like, okay, I don't think <laughs> she ended up having kids because she like hates children so much um, in this book. Um, and you know she didn't make these choices for herself and she was seemed to have a relatively happy life um you know as a writer um but i think it's kindness to her characters writer like she is ultimately like a generous heart and she wants to give them what they want in the end you know like it's not they're not her saying her characters end up alone isn't like freedom in 1795 that's its whole own you know journey and story and so like just for her to end these books she has to give them some kind of peace um and that that's my take like i don't mind that they all get married at the end especially marianne gets married in like the last two sentences um of this book yeah so i don't know did it bother you todd no
1: because i i agree like it would be different if the characters didn't want that life you know we're we are putting on uh these characters um our social mores of today where a different thing is you know i, I mean many people want to be married and live happily ever after i mean i want to be married and live happily ever after and my uh 21st wedding anniversary is a month away um Congrats. and so putting in the happily ever after at the end i mean that's the canon of romance literature all of it ends with a happily ever after um, it's what the characters want. And in a way, it's what the characters end up deserving. You know, Marianne gets the, the practical good man who is not going to, um, lose his mind over her dramatics. He's Greg. going to take care of her. And that's what she Greg. wants. She would have murdered Willoughby if they had been married to one another. Um, and, and Eleanor, um, Eleanor wins, you know, her sensibility, um, Wins the day, you know. Edward finally is able to recognize what he wants most of all is her, and 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 gets her. So you know, it, the happy ending to me is earned. Um, I don't think these are political books. These are these are the the popular fiction of their time, and the popular and popular fiction demands a happy ending in most cases. We want the mystery, mystery to be solved. We want um the man and the woman to fall in love whatever it might be we we're not we're not looking for the tragedy of being alone in a drafty house the poor mother has been widowed and and lives in sadness uh for all that has been lost and sure enough that will be what happens to these women as well you know eventually they are going to be widowed also um so it's not ever after it's just for the next you know 15 years of their life maybe or 20 years of their (laughs) life and so I I accept that you know and I accept that it's not Mm -hmm. going to be easy um because that's what the reader wants the reader I you know I just I, I was remembering I did an interview the other day and someone asked me like what the best advice was that I ever got as a writer and I was thinking about like you know sometime in the middle of my career I realized people don't read books because at the end they want to they want to cut their veins open and die from how sad they are. They mostly read books to be entertained and taken away from their own shitty lives and that it's okay to every now and then give them that. (laughs) Like that was a good lesson for me.
0: No, but, but I think that there's more to these books than popular fiction, right? I mean, that's why they've lasted longer than. Yeah. Like there were, there was genuinely horrible popular fiction that just catered to everybody's desires for like, happy marriages and whatnot this book is doing something more than that and yet and yet still ending like I mean I completely disagree with, with the points you guys made about it's it, it the characters deserve a happy ending because like what Romeo and Juliet don't deserve a happy ending like there's no, plenty of Shakespeare Romeo's plays that are that are meaningful <laughs> precisely because they don't get a happy ending and that that's what makes them last right like if you set up romantic expectations you have the choice as an author whether and it wasn't just the the popularity gam- like it wasn't the, the Romeo event and Juliet's on a tragedy
1: I mean that of course this is an important and, thing. and
0: Shakespeare has plenty of of comedies that end in marriage too but and and, and I would say that most of them are are kind of problematic in the same way that I think this is problematic. But I, I guess I'm just saying that, like, it wasn't... It's, it's like, you could have... She could have written novels, and it was entirely possible, you know, and, and people did and wrote plenty of the novels where people don't end up in their marriage or they die alone or whatever. And the fact that she in, encodes within the, her story all this criticism of polite society, but then at the end of the story, saves polite society, uh, bothers me. Like, that to me just in terms of narrative is that you're saving polite society. You're saying that all this aristocratic gossip and, uh, you know, behind the scenes, like all that tension, because like basically the whole, all of Jane Austen's books, as far as I could tell, are about the tension between the will of the individual and this sort of romantic, emotional, personal uh, sensibility or, you know, uh, sensibility in the, in the <laughs> identity sense, the personal, you know, mm-hmm. that up against, the, the mores of their society, right? The, the rules of their society. And it's that tension that you're constantly feeling where it's like, oh, you're trapped by this. You can't just say what you feel or, you know, you, you have to do this thing that you, it's against the way you really feel like that's all the tension of the book. And the way that the, the, the stories seemed, I mean, I've only read two, but it seems to me that her stories always sort of end with a, a nice, neat bow where those, that conflict is dissolved by marriage and that no longer will anybody who's a bad person, you know, be rewarded and no, no longer will good people be, you know, will suffer. That is the sort of like moral universe that she creates over and over again. And that is to me to reinforce the aristocracy. It's to reinforce the landowners for their society and the saying, you guys are doing it right. It might not feel great. And there's going to be times when you feel like you're trapped by it, but stick it out. And if you're a good person and you Manage that balance. This society is doing you right. That to me is still I, seems like the message of these these books.
2: I think I think you're right in a lot of ways. Like it's not the House of Mirth. It's not Middlemarch. She's I think she agrees with and accepts the society. I don't think she's criticizing the system. She's not criticizing the system. She's saying this system exists, and even though these people seem like caricatures, they're also whole people. You know, she's just showing us something. She's not criticizing something. She's like, she herself called her novels like a sketch in miniature or like two inches of ivory or something like that. Um, so, yeah, I don't think her goal here is to like, you know, take down these social structures. She's not Harriet Peter Stowe with this like missionary type, you know, vision of criticizing slave owners she's not doing anything like that she's just saying like look at these human beings and like yeah everything works out for willoughby but like he kind of ended up but with not a really wife and and he yeah, says exactly. you know
1: I, I i'm gonna live my life dreading you know a day and that day is when your sister gets married or whatever it is he right. says
2: right uh, guys we gotta read middle march we gotta read middle march oh it's yeah so i've got
1: something to do i i had <laughs> I, oh, I'm, I'm ill. <laughs> oh, right I don't it. think I'm going to make I it. Did. You read it,
0: right? No, I never did. Oh, so I need oh. to read Middlemarch oh, definitely. new phone. It, Who's
1: this? I don't... <laughs> Wait,
0: yeah, is this, know, or, or, or is this Reply All? Great...
1: I thought I was on Reply All. What, what is this? There, oh. are, there are
0: plenty of, of novels, you know, I think mostly later, that, that deal with a lot of the same sort of... Um, polite society and you know anna karenina like there's so many books about this sort of that do end in tragedy that do really demolish the existing power structures and the point of those stories is to say there's something fundamentally wrong here that's pushing these people into you know very unhappy situations and that's excluding certain people i just don't think jane austen is writing that book i mean yeah you're right she's writing no she's not and it's somewhere. It's not that it's complete fluff, right? It, it's better than fluff. It's it, it, but it is still appealing to the fluff. It's still like yeah, uh, you know. It's, but it's,
1: I, I mean, there's lots of stuff that appeal to the fluff that still have dynamic, rounded characters. I mean, I, I think this is the 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 difference is that she might be saying yes, the system that's in place will lead to your happiness if you find the right person to love. But what we've seen from the characters in this book is that they're tortured. They're they're not going through this in complicity you know they they actually end up finding the people that they love and marrying them the ones that we care about right like willoughby gets what willoughby deserves but eleanor and edward marry and they love each other um marianne and the colonel marry because marianne settles for him and then realizes he's a good man
2: <laughs> I mean, in one sentence
1: in one <laughs> sentence What <laughs> Which happens, like my mom and her second marriage. Um, You know, these things, I I think, are realistic um, in a fantasy-like world. I mean, we're not, it's not the real world. It's like one standard deviation from reality. And so you take it, I think, with a little bit of a grain of, with a little grain of salt here, so that I don't, I don't think Austin is attempting to make these grand political statements that we're giving her right now. But because these books have stood the test of time, it's reasonable for us to then ask these questions, why? Right. And and that's, and that's the, the larger issues. Is, you know, what, what about this has, has made it durable where everything else perhaps has not? And so I think your, your argument mm-hmm. is a good one. Um, and it's one probably that um, you could solve with a little Jane Austen fan fiction.
2: Hell yeah! <laughs> well it was funny i
0: was actually thinking like the best jane austen fan fiction nowadays like in a con- if you were to like write like this you would probably focus on on high school or, or junior high even you know because like the amount of like note passing and gossiping it, it it does feel in today's society very similar to like what people go through in yeah middle school.
1: i mean you'd be yeah. you'd be writing she's all that or whatever you know whatever the, the right. teen movie oh, like you know clueless you'd be writing clueless
0: well, all those yeah, teen Clueless movies is in the nineties. a 90s. masterpiece, whereas like I, you know, like most teen comedy romantic comedies aren't. But, right. I mean, you know, like there's something there. there a Clueless is dripping with irony in a way that you know she's all that is not.
1: No,
2: that's well, great. and I think that this like putting it in the teen rom com conversation highlights exactly what Jane Austen is good at, which is yeah, irony and especially what Emma the book and Clueless the Adaptation are about is someone is like the author, the narrator, not even knowing how clueless they are. That's why it's the title. It's this like self-awareness and you're really in someone's mind and you're seeing things from their point of view in a way like, what is the point of view of She's All That? It is nothing. It is like Mm It has nothing It's to Freddie
1: say. Prince Jr.
0: <laughs> it's, it's it's her coming down um, the stairs and him being like, "What?" She took off her glasses. Yeah. Oh my God, she's like, <laughs> lost. <leave it? laughs>
2: but whose mind is that from? You know, that's yeah. from like this like corporate movie mind. Whereas yeah. clueless, Emma, Jane Austen, these are from like a There's mind. There's something you bigger. Feel yeah. her mind. Yes. That's what's cool about it.
1: That's true. That's true. Well, I think. Kids, if you're uh, just joining us for the first time, check out this hot new YA author, Jane Austen. I think you're going to like her. <laughs> if you love perks of being a wallflower, you're going to love sense and sensibility. <laughs> Actually, you probably would, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> yep.
0: Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for LitHub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter, at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening.